0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. This morning we begin an eight-week series in the Gospel of Luke called Turning Points, uh, Transformation in the Ordinary Stuff of Life, Stories of Transformation. I believe Jesus Christ calls every disciple to be transformed. In fact, one of, part of our mission statement here, which you see painted on the wall as you go towards Larson Hall uh, this morning, is to center our lives on Jesus Christ, to grow through Christ-centered community, and to participate in the transforming work of God through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ calls us, he loves us so much that he embraces us just the way we are. And yet he loves us so much that he doesn't dare to leave us that way. He calls us forward into transformation, to change, to be changed. As he says, uh, Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, We are to be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the face of our Lord. As through a mirror dimly. So we're transformed from what we once were. We are also transformed uh, over against the norms of society. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 12. uh, Be not conformed uh, to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that you may discern what is the will of God. That which is good and perfect and acceptable. As you know, when Jesus Christ stepped on to the stage of history, he called people to this one word, repent. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you may know that word repent, both in Hebrew and in Greek, means simply to turn. Jesus is calling his followers to turning point after turning point after turning point in their life. I think, by the way, when he says Turn for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he means is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think he means literally the kingdom of heaven is an experience of God that we can literally step into. As though a threshold were placed at our feet. And Jesus says, step in. Be transformed. Well, then it's not surprising that Jesus, as he invites us to turn, uses stories parables any good story that's worth its salt uh, is always a, something that expands our horizon right after a good story you see yourself and you see the world differently you see it more clearly you see more of it and that's why jesus gives us these stories that we call parables a parable uh, the word english word parable is a transliteration of a greek word parabole which means simply to throw something alongside of something else Jesus is throwing alongside uh, a, a story, a common story of common things in life, everyday life, as his parables tend to deal with. But alongside the mystery of the kingdom of God. And if, if we can see what he's showing us in the story, perhaps we can see what he wants us to see about his kingdom and be invited into it. The word parable, uh, the Greek word parable, translates uh, the Hebrew word mashal, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which means Proverb. Or story, allegory, um, or myth, but the, the core meaning of it is something that's hidden—a puzzle. So that when you hear the parables, it causes your head to, uh, to, to to wrap around a new truth, to bend, to puzzle it out, and then to see an expanded reality and to step into it. So the story that we look at this morning, our first parable, is is a story of apathy that is turned to great. Feeling. So I want to invite you to pull out your Bible or the black book in the rack in front of you, that's uh, Pew Bible, and open up to Luke chapter 7. In the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 840. And let's stand together and read uh, this story. Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. It's right in the middle of that long paragraph there. Luke 7, verses 40 through 43. And if you're visiting, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it's true, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's word. Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, when they really could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt." And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. One of the pleasures of vacation for me is to be able to worship in other churches and we did that this summer and i heard a preacher define the word sin and he defined it as rebellion against god running away from god and i suppose that's what it is and yet as i was processing that and thinking about that in the context of my own life I, while I know that I'm a sinful person, I don't experience myself rebelling against God. I don't have an experience that that I'm running away from God. You know, in fact, as I go on runs and jogs, I oftentimes find myself praying and saying, "Lord, I want more of You in my life. I want to experience more of You. We know more of who You are. And I don't feel like I'm really." Running away from it makes me wonder: Are there two different kinds uh, of sin? Is there a, a sin of irreligion, and is there maybe a sin of religion? I mean, after all, I you know I come to church every week, even when I'm not paid to be here, and uh, I try to read my Bible regularly and to pray, and um, I even from time to time give stuff away to help people who are poor and. I know that my heart beats for justice. I yearn for justice uh, in the world. And yet, if the truth be known, there are moments in my life where I feel for all of my trying, I just cannot quite touch the heart of God. I just can't break through. And and really, rather than feeling love for God, I I guess I'd have to admit a spirit of indifference in me, There's a kind of a, a reserve, or in the most horrifying moments, a kind of an apathy towards God. Apathy. Well, are there two kinds of sin? I, I, the story that Jesus gives us, the parable, there are actually uh, two different uh, people in the story. There are two uh, debtors, and as Jesus tells the story, he's sitting in a room in which there are two people who've kind of emerged into the foreground... And they're two very different types of people who have sinned in very different uh, types ways. One quite irreligious and the other rather religious. And yet both have known apathy. Both of them, I suggest. Well, let me read a little bit into this uh, scene so that you can understand why Jesus tells this particular parable. Luke 7, verse 36 Luke writes, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind Jesus at his feet. Weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. That she is a sinner. Apathy, I say, both of them. Both of them in their lives. A heart that cannot reach through to touch the heart of God's. But they're two very different people, aren't they? Luke presents to us the woman with a rather brief uh, resume. A woman in the city, he says, a sinner. And scholars have been curious about who this woman is. She goes unnamed in the story, other than just to be labeled a sinner. Is she Mary the Magdalene, some wonder? Well, I don't think so, because the very next story in uh, Luke chapter 8, we see that Luke introduces to his readers Mary the Magdalene, as though for the first time. Is she a prostitute? This has been kind of the traditional understanding. She's a prostitute. But Luke never says that. Luke wants us to see her simply as a a sinner. She has some kind of reputation for sin. She could be a prostitute in the city. She could be an adulterer. She could be a woman who applies an unreputable trade. For some reason, she's known not only to herself, but to all as a sinner. As a person who has broken the rules. And I say, she doesn't seem very apathetic here in this, in this scene, does she? But I say that she has struggled with apathy because I think there's a sort of apathy that says to God, you know, whether I believe in you or not, I fail to see the relevance of you in my life. And I'm going to live my life by my own rules. And that's the way this woman has coped with what perhaps have been horrible circumstances. She's done it her way. And then there's another person in the room. There's a man who is named, actually, as Jesus addresses him, we find out, Simon. And Luke tells us he is a Pharisee. And immediately we all go, ooh, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We really misread Pharisees. For us... Pharisee has become a synonym with, what? Hypocrisy. Somebody who says one thing and does another thing. But that's absolutely the opposite of what a Pharisee, in general, was in the first century. Pharisees were socio-political and religious uh, reformers. They were lay people and clergy as well who said, you know what? In an apostate society, we believe in God and we want to stand for God. We believe God's Word is precious. And they have all these traditions of how to apply God's Word to real life. They were really eager, hungry, I say, for God. They lived a simple life. They tithed everything. They took the temple purity and they said, We'll live this way at home. And they consecrated their homes. They were known for table fellowship as they gathered and worshipped over a meal. Oh, Simon. Simon is a man who, all his life, has wanted to touch the heart of God. He's, after all, the guy who's held this party. He's the small group leader, right? He's there, he's invited everybody, and, and he, after all, is the one who is a spiritual seeker. He's reached out to Jesus Christ. He says, What is Rabbi Jesus? Let's hear more about him. I'd like to meet him and give him an opportunity to teach. Simon, Simon very much wants, yearns for God in his life. And yet I say of Simon also, he struggles with apathy. How do we see his apathy in this story? We see it by way of contrast. As the man who should be the protagonist in the story, the central character, begins to recede into the background in front of the beauty of this woman and her gesture towards Jesus Christ. See, she comes into this house and it's true that oftentimes a meal like this would be a public occasion. you know sort of an open courtyard and doors are open. people can come in who are curious and listen or participate. The invited guests would all be gathered around the table, that low table. They would lean usually on their left elbow with their legs stretched out backwards. And people gathered around, sitting and then against the wall standing. And here comes this woman. Here comes this sinner. We're told she comes prepared because she's got an alabaster jar, a small fragile stone or glass jar with perfume in it, which is the A far more expensive way to do an anointing, more precious than the most expensive of olive oil. And she comes apparently to anoint Jesus, maybe to put the oil on his head or something. And I, I see her in my mind's eye coming into that room rather shyly and sheepishly, knowing she really doesn't belong and that she will be discovered, making her way through the doorway, pressing through the people who stand, through the people who are sitting, and there is... Jesus the Savior. It's, she doesn't even have time to get to his head. Have you ever been caught off guard by your own tears? Maybe you're at a sporting event or a, a moving commercial on television and comes and you think, this is not a place for tears, but all of a sudden you're bawling like a baby. I think that's the experience this woman has. She's moving for his head, but she doesn't get past his feet. when all She face to face with her Savior, bursts into tears. Somewhat embarrassed, she sees that her tears are falling on the feet of Jesus. She bends over with her hair to wipe them dry and realizes now I'm into it. And in a a fit of emotion, begins to kiss his feet and anoint her Savior. And all the while, here's Simon, mortified, Speechless, immobilized, in apathy, not knowing what to say, not able to say anything at all. Simon, this man who yearns for the fulfillment of God's promises through the whole of the Hebrew Bible, is now in the room with beauty itself. He's face to face with that which is love. And he can't move. He can't reach out to touch. Jesus would call to our attention that Simon had omitted even the basic uh, gestures of hospitality. So far as he didn't offer any water for his feet or oil for his head. Not even the common kiss that one gives as a guest comes through the door. Jesus points out, you've not been able to touch me. I'm reminded of Simeon. This great saint, this old man who's run the race, he comes to the end of his life. He's at the temple one day, happens to be the day that Jesus, the baby, is to be dedicated. And he begs for a moment with the baby in his hands. He takes Jesus, this baby, and listen what he says to the baby. He says, looking into his eyes, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the nations, and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon knew what it was to be face to face with God's heart. But Simon can't touch it. Simon is someone who has lived, not by breaking the rules, but by keeping them. And his heart has grown cold. And he doesn't know why. In the same way that I don't know why, when my heart feels cold toward God, what it is, it's at work. And so Jesus, at this point, offers a turning point. It's right here that Jesus says to Simon, I know why. And I have a story for you, Simon. And Simon says, speak. It's good that somebody speaks because I can't, right? Let me read the story in verse 40. we have already read it. But listen again. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, Simon replied, Speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A a, a denarius is a day's wage. This is probably a year and three quarters worth of wages, counting Sabbaths. And and the other 50, a couple months. And and when these two debtors could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debts. And you know what the Greek says? It says, he showed him grace. That's really what it says. Showed him grace. He showed grace for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he showed more grace. And Jesus said to him, you judged rightly. So it's a story, Jesus tells. And in the story... There are two characters. It's always helpful when you've got characters like this to ask yourself what's similar about them and what's different. There are two similarities about each of these two debtors, and there's one difference. The two similarities are this. First of all, both of them have a debt that they cannot pay. Do you see that? That's important. Jesus wants Simon to see that. These two characters are proxies for the two people that are standing in front of him. See, both of them have a debt that they cannot pay. Pay. Simon doesn't understand that, you know, because remember what he calls the woman? She's a sinner. Yeah, he's got a category for people with debts they can't pay, but he doesn't think he belongs to that cat. He's not a member of the set. She is. She's a sinner. Jesus says, no. Both of these debtors have a debt they cannot pay. The second similarity is the money lender forgives the debt of both. He shows them both grace. See that? Both of them, Simon, or offered grace. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the scale of the debt. One of them is a huge debt. And the other, it's a relatively small debt. Now, what is Jesus implying in this? Is he suggesting that Simon isn't really as much of a sinner as this woman? I don't think so. I think Jesus has no intention of reinforcing Simon's superiority over this woman. That's why the first point, they both have a debt they can't pay, Simon. No, but I think he wants it to make it very clear to Simon what it is that's motivating this extravagant expression of love. And what motivates it is her experience of the size of her debt that's been forgiven. In her mind, she knows it's huge. So, maybe this helps. I'm going to pull out... You know, three cups here. Okay? That helped. So, here in this cup is a uh, plastic cup, is water. This is the debt cup. Right? This is our perception of how much debt we have accrued before the money lender. The parable goes like this. You say, well, if you've got that much sense of your debt, you pour that into the grace of the money lender, who forgives it all. As much as you pour into the grace cup, it's forgiven. And as much as you understand that you have been shown grace, you pour that into the love cup. Because you will find an automatic reaction to your experience of grace that induces the great love for Jesus Christ. And and, and this was so easily misunderstood that Paul had to address this. He says, well, does that mean we should just sin even more and more so that we have more and more experience of grace and more love? And he says, no, no, no. Friends, you cannot love somebody who's shown you grace like that. So, Mark, can you see this? (laughs) Jesus couldn't either. How about this? All right, I'm going to pull out a few buckets here. And here's how it works. This is the woman's perception of the debt that Jesus has forgiven. And because she knows how much debt, and because she knows who Jesus is, she's got a huge experience of grace in her life. I'm glad Mark didn't say, you liar. This is all true. And because she has that experience of God's grace in Jesus Christ, her response is a huge bucket of love. Jesus says, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Not because she's loved. He says, I can tell you that her sins are forgiven because I've seen her love bucket. See, that's what the story is showing Simon, this is the invitation that he's receiving as he listens to it. The parable creates this tension between the way he sees life and the way that Jesus sees it. You've got it all wrong, Simon. I'm inviting you to believe the gospel. And then he says to Simon, after the story, he says, Simon, and I think he kind of turns his back almost on Simon. He says, you see that woman? Listen, it's it's verse 44. It says, then turning to the woman... Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped passionately kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, and this is the key question of the whole. Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's not about two different kinds of people. Not about two different kinds of lifestyle, religious or irreligious. Not about two different kinds of sin. It's all about one great act of grace. We see it in verse 47. I mean, you could ask yourself, what do we know about this woman? We get a little insight here, verse 47. Paul says, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. That in Greek is the perfect tense. And remember, in Greek, the perfect tense is used to depict something that has happened in the past that has a continuing effect, an effect that's at work in the present. Her sins have been forgiven. That moment of her faith has begun to transform her life. On the other hand, he says, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. This is the present tense, is forgiven. As he looks at Simon, I think, it says, you haven't received yet much forgiveness, have you, Simon? She clearly has faith in the gospel. And and you want to understand what the gospel is. You need to know that. That's that's the critical thing. That's That's what has shaped her experience of God's grace. It's this one word, the gospel. Gospel shapes the whole... That's why we call this the gospel of Luke. And that's why when the angels come on the scene at the beginning of Luke, what they say is the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a compound word in Greek. Two words that are sort of smashed together. Good and announcement. Good announcement. And, and, and Tim Keller has pointed out that this word really comes from the news media. And I think he's right about that. Because after all, in, in the ancient world, there, w- there was no internet, there was no television, no radio, no newspapers, of course. And so, how did you get your news? Of course, from a, a herald. Someone who would announce uh, news. The king, would, his army, would go out to battle and leave the uh, villagers or city people behind. Very nervous, by the way. uh wonder if we're going to end this day as slaves in somebody else's uh, kingdom. The king runs out and fights a day, two days, who knows how long. And once the king is victorious, he will send back a herald running as fast as he can, hoping that the villagers have not fled to announce, The king has won! The war is over! The victory has been achieved. It's good news. That's the gospel. So the angels say. I've got good news for you. John the Baptist says, I've got good news for you. Jesus begins his preaching says, it's about good news. When Jesus comes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, they hand him a scroll. He unwinds to Isaiah 61. And he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring... Good news to the oppressed. And he sits down. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The problem with us is, we think Christianity is about good advice. If you ask anybody in Seattle, you go to coffee, ask them, what do you think Christianity is about? Ask them. I think they're going to tell, well, you know, it's about kind of being a good person, obeying the Ten Commandments. Oh, it's the golden rule. And you listen, hear this right. Those are important. The rules that God gives, the golden rule, the Ten Commandments, let's all do that. But that's not the heart of, of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is good news. The King has won. Your forgiveness has been completed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We wonder how this woman hears good news. We're not really told, but I have a theory about it. Uh, back, if you look later on at Luke chapter five, you see Luke tells a story, an incident in the life of Jesus, when people come from all over Galilee, all over Judea, even as far as Jerusalem, to hear his teaching and to see him do these miracles. There's so many crowds are all packed around one particular house. I think this woman is present. She would have seen a four friends carrying a paralytic, bold faith, through the crowds. Not able to get to the door, they go through the roof and lower the paralytic right in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, I think somewhat surprisingly, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to say such audacious things, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and walk. And he does. And i got to believe this woman is looking through the window, or from a distance in the crowd, and she goes, his sins are forgiven. He has the authority to say that for me. And she knows it's true. And she cannot wait to get her hands in gratitude and in love on her Savior. Simon, do you see? Do you see what broke her through her apathy? Do you see the source of overwhelming emotional power in her life? Do you see that this woman has literally contacted the heart of God? It's good news. It's not good advice, Simon. Reaching, you don't reach the heart of God through adding credit to your life. You reach His heart through receiving His forgiveness of your debts. You don't reach His heart by keeping obedience. You reach it by keeping your eyes on Jesus, your forgiver. You don't reach it by working for competence after competence in your life. But by resting in the freedom that you are loved even in the midst of your failure. Simon, you live by rules. She lives by grace. How about you? Living by good advice or good news? Do you believe that ultimately, at the end of time, God is going to take notice of your life, your career? He's going to be kind of impressed by you and your piety and credential you? Or do you believe in the God who literally bends heaven down to meet us in our place of greatest need, deepest shame, and most heartfelt brokenness, the humiliation of the incarnation and the cross? He has died for me. He has died for you. He has risen for me, and he has risen for you, friends. That is good news. Are you prepared to hear from him today? His assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Let's go to him in prayer. We confess to you, God, that we have been running, running, running. We've paid attention to every bit of advice and every rule that seems wise to us and think that therein is our future and salvation. But we pray this morning. We pray for ourselves, for those who are hearing the good news that you bring for the first time today and for those who have heard it year after year after year. Break through to our hearts. Let us lay before you the full burden of our sinfulness, our utter incapacity, that we might receive from you the overwhelming gift of grace. And as we do, we know that your heart will have touched us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.